came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on Sabbath days. And they were continually amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he went out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began discussing with one another and saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. The main thing I want us to get out of these studies uh, in the miracles is, that, is simply that they are the Father's works in, in miniature. Jesus said, uh, my Father is working and I work. And when we see the Lord doing his miracles, actually what we're seeing is the Lord doing his works. These are cameos, little pictures, vignettes however you want to describe them. We get uh, a deeper understanding of what the Father is like and what he has chosen to do. The, uh, the question that, that often uh, is raised when we face into the evil in the world, when, when we take a hard, realistic look at the world and see how difficult things are, People always raise questions about the goodness of God and the ability of God. They come to the conclusion that he, either he doesn't care or he isn't powerful, but uh, the miracles show us that neither of those, those ideas are true. He does care, and he is powerful. We've looked at three of the miracles so far. There's, there's that story of the wedding in Cana and and. and the changing of the water into wine and what that shows us about the Father is that he cares about the little things of life. It matters to him that, uh, that they ran out of wine at a, at a party. And uh, it, it reminds us again that God sprinkles little serendipities all through life, happy surprises, sort of indications of joy. C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that we are now and then surprised by joy. It gives us some idea of the colossal joy that will be ours when the Lord comes back. The second story we looked at was the story of uh, the official, the man from Herod's court whose little son, little boy, was terminally ill. And he came to Jesus begging for his life, and, and Jesus healed him from a, from a distance. And what that shows us about the Father is that he cares about little people. He cares about the fact that they're neglected and overlooked and and often harmed, they're abused and mistreated. It matters to him about these little ones. And then last week we talked about the man at the Pool of Bethesda down in, uh, in Jerusalem, the sort of lords of Jerusalem in the first century, this, this place uh, where the deformed and the crippled gathered to be healed. And, and out of all that, that mass of, of humanity, our Lord struck up a conversation of one man and healed one man in his helpless estate. Augustine, in, 
in reflecting on this story, uh, pointed out that there lay so many there and yet only one was healed. While he could, by a word, have raised them all up, and it raises the question, why he didn't? Why didn't Jesus say the word in, in that entire room full of, full of crippled and deformed, discouraged people? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't that happen? Well, he chose not to, just as he's chosen not to heal everyone today. Here and there he heals as a kind of down payment of the future. We live in the presence of the future in, in that sense. We're seeing the future before it happens. We're seeing what things will be like when our Lord comes back to, to heal everyone who's crippled and give sight to the blind and, and restore health to the sick and heal marriages and set minds right that are distorted and deprived. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a foretaste of heaven. And uh, also, that, that story at Bethesda shows us that, that God's concern for now is, is far deeper than just, just physical healing. He was concerned about the spiritual uh, illness, sickness of this man, and he probed until he got to the heart of things, this, the sin that was in this man's life. And while he does not heal everybody, he does want to heal every soul. Now, uh, this morning we want to talk about this man in Capernaum, the demonized man, as Luke, Luke describes him. And uh, we're told that it happened on the Sabbath day, on Saturday. Jesus and four of his disciples came into the synagogue. Luke doesn't tell us that his disciples were with him, but Mark makes it very clear that Peter and James and John and Andrew were with him. And they came into the synagogue as their custom was. Now, in those days, they didn't have a professional ministry as such. Uh, traveling rabbis spoke, or any man in the community would, would be invited to read the law and the prophets and to say the prayers and the benedictions and perhaps comment on, on the text that was read. And it was our Lord's custom to go to the synagogue on Saturday morning on their Sabbath. And he often was asked uh, to speak. Uh, the synagogue, uh, the idea of synagogue worship developed during the Babylonian captivity. When they were in exile and they were separated from the temple, they began to worship in synagogues, and then that practice carried over even after the, uh, even after the temple was, was rebuilt. That was uh, their church. It's where they gathered for worship. The synagogue where this particular event took place is, uh, uh, at least the foundations are, are still visible. They're in Capernaum. If you go to Capernaum today and visit that site, uh, you'll see a, temple, uh, a synagogue that was built in the second century on the foundations of the old synagogue. The layout's still the same. And the thing that's interesting about that synagogue is that, like most of them, it's oriented toward the, toward the west. You face the west as you walk into the synagogue. And there have been a lot of uh, attempts by rabbis and others to explain why that's so. But the, the explanation that commends itself most to me, that's most attractive to me, is that it was based on the notion that when the Son of Righteousness came with, with healing in his wings, as Malachi puts it, he'll come from the east and he would walk right through the door. And interestingly enough, the Son of Righteousness did walk through that door that day and was invited uh, to come to the front and to take his seat, to read the scriptures, and to expound uh, upon them. Now, we're not told uh, in this particular story what the content of his message was. Uh, 
But we do know that our Lord repeated himself quite often. That's why often there are seeming discrepancies in the gospel accounts. They may be talking about two entirely different uh, uh, sets of circumstances. And, and uh, while well, our Lord, I'm sure, didn't say the same thing on every occasion, very often he gave the same message. And we do have an example of the message, the kind of message that he was giving at this particular time. It's in this chapter. It's uh, back in verse 16. Let me read it to you. Uh, we're told that he came to Nazareth, which is the little town where our Lord uh, had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. That's what they did in those days. The custom was to stand up to read the text. And then they seated themselves. And they spoke from a, uh, from a sitting position. He stood up to read and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. That would be the reading for the day. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him, waiting for him to to give his address. Uh, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? The particular reading in, in the uh, prophets for that day was Isaiah 61. And our Lord unrolled the scroll and he read this, uh, that section of the text. And then he began to expound upon it. Now, the text reads exactly as Luke uh, reports, uh, records it for us here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is, uh, and this is a reference to the suffering servant of Messiah who was generally interpreted at that time to be the Messiah. The Spirit of God would descend upon the Messiah and empower him for his ministry. And you'll notice that Jesus applies that phrase to himself this day. This scripture is fulfilled in, in your eyes. He anointed me to announce good news to the poor, those that are beat and sunk and, and in despair, the pitiable, the homeless. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, those that are enslaved to drugs and, and sex and power and, and ambition and alcohol. He's going to set them free from the one who's victimized them and oppressed them. He's going to give recovery of sight to the blind, those that are deluded and, and duped and fooled by Satan, and to set free those who are downtrodden, the abused, the oppressed, the battered, those that are mistreated, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now that phrase, the favorable, favorable year of the Lord, originally referred to the uh, year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year on the Jewish calendar. Every 50th year was a day in which everything it was a year in which everything was set right they uh, they gave back all the lands that uh, had been bought and appropriated and they forgave all the debts and they let uh, prisoners go free and it was a picture intended to be a picture of the day when messiah comes and rules and sets everything right so you can see what our Lord is doing. He takes this passage and he, and he applies it to himself and he says this is the day that this is beginning to be fulfilled I've come to to give sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to set free the captives, those that have been ensnared by Satan to do, to do his will. 
and to announce the coming of the, of the age. The, uh, both Old and New Testament divide time and eternity into two ages. There is the, this present evil age, which is, as John says, in the grip, in the lap, in the pocket of the evil one. And then there is this coming age when our Lord comes to fix everything and set everything right. And Jesus says, in effect, we're living in the presence of the future. What I am doing is the down payment, the earnest of that day when, when Messiah will set everything right. Now you can see why this enraged the demon. Because what Jesus proclaimed is, is deliverance, that he had come to set free those that had been enslaved by Satan. That's why the demon came unglued. Now, we don't know much about this man. Uh, apparently, whatever demon uh, activity was going on was fairly covert. He, he wasn't perhaps known as, as possessing a demon. He was fairly calm and quiet under normal circumstances. And the man had gone into the synagogue probably because he had a hunger for God. And this demon was going about his business, trying to blight and ruin and destroy this man's life and everyone else's life. And he gets dragged, kicking and screaming into a church service. Everyone else is marveling at Jesus' words, and this demon is terrorized by it. And that's why he shouts out loud. Now, I want to take a minute or two to talk about demon possession, because a lot of people are confused uh, about that phenomenon and what it means, how to identify someone who, who is demon possession. We'll talk more about that, uh, that sort of thing when we talk about the, le uh, the legion, the, de the demons that Jesus uh, cast out in the country of the Gerasenes. But, but I want to give you just a quick picture of what was going on in this man's life so you understand something of what our, our Lord came uh, to do. I want to say, first of all, that there is a spiritual dimension. There are ghosts in the machine. There, there, there's a bug in the program. There's something going on that we're not aware of. It's happening all around us. Now, ever since the 18th century in the so-called Enlightenment, uh, our attention, at least here in the West, has been riveted upon things that you can see. What you see is what you get. That's our philosophy of life. What you see and touch and taste and handle and... It's the material that matters. But uh, that's a distortion of reality because there's a whole world out there that you can't submit to the scientific method. You can't see it. It's going on all around us. And it's just as real as the world that we see. It's very clear in, uh, in the Narnia tales. If you've read any of C.S. Lewis's children's novels in the first the lion the witch and the wardrobe becomes abundantly clear that there are two worlds there's the world of wartime london and the, and the english countryside in which the children live and there's another world that's unseen and unknown by those that live in england that's just as real there's a there's a cosmic conflict being played out in that case between aslan and and uh, the white witch and it's it's going on all the time but but most people are unaware of it. They just don't know. Now, now we, have, we have to believe that. We have to understand that there are two worlds, both of which are very real, 
both of which have to be reckoned with. I mentioned in our, our studies in Joshua that uh, the, the, the classic uh, illustration that that uh, George that uh, Francis Schaeffer uses of the the Christian on an airplane seated between two gentlemen, one of whom is an engineer from uh, Palo Alto, California, Stanford trained man, who is an atheist, and uh, a wealthy rice farmer on his left who is uh, from a third world country, and he's an animist. He believes in demons and having to appease and propitiate evil spirits. And uh, Schaefer raises the question, which of the two is closer to Christianity? Well, the animist is, clearly, because he, he takes as reality the fact that there's another world that has to be understood, has to be reckoned with. And if we're true to the truth, if we're true to our Lord's teaching, we have to understand that this is not all there is. There's another world. And it's inhabited by good and, and evil spirits. They're described in the, both in the Old and New Testament as messengers. That's, uh, the, our word is translated an, angels. Angelos, it means messengers for someone else, either for God or for the evil one. Now the question is, what are they? What are these demons? Are they uh, the spirits of uh, the disembodied spirits of the dead? Are they satires, or are they uh, trolls or wookies? What are they? Well, uh, the, the scriptures are strangely silent about their origin, but we can gather some information from passages like uh, Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 12. It would seem that uh, the demons are created beings. They're angels. Originally, they were angels, good angels, that joined in Satan's grand rebellion. One of the angels decided to abscond with God's power. He, according to Isaiah, he wanted to ascend to the mountains in the north, and he wanted to be like God. And he swept with him a number of angels in that, in that rebellion. And since then, they, they have joined forces in order to try to undo what God is doing. That's basically their strategy. That's what they're after. They, they, they want to ruin God's efforts to try to bring salvation to, uh, to this world. I think uh, perhaps the best text to study in this regard is John 10 and Jesus' teaching about the thief, he says, who comes to, to steal and kill and destroy. I am come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly, he says. Now that states the uh, antithesis, uh, uh, the antithesis exactly. Our Lord wants to give life. Satan wants to take life. He wants to ruin. He wants to steal lives away from away from God. So that's why I say uh, Satan's primary concern and the demons uh, are in cahoots with him in his skull uh, to undo what, what God is doing. Now, I believe that Satan and his, and his demons employ two methods, basically. One covert and the other overt. Uh, it's interesting to look at uh, the names that are given to Satan in, in, the old, in, in the Old and New Testament because they give us some idea of what he's up to. He is called in the New Testament Apollyon, which means destroyer. He wants to destroy life. Or as Jesus put it, he wants to murder. He wants to kill. 
He's called the deceiver. He wants to uh, sell us down the river by telling us a bunch of lies. Comes at us every day. It's like Muzak. You know, you get it in magazines, you get it in the media, you, you, you get it in Playboy magazine, but you also get it from Reader's Digest and Fortune magazine and Ladies Home Journal. and It just comes at us and from every direction. Good television programs, bad television programs, X-rated movies, G-rated movies. It's just this idea that you can do without God. Something that you put on or something that you wear, something you drive, something that you live in, something that you do, something that you achieve is going to satisfy you apart from God. That's the big lie. And it just keeps coming at us from all sides. He's the deceiver. That's the name. It's the deceiver of the brethren. He's called the accuser. He's the one that points that long bony finger at you and says, just remember what you did last week. A terrible thing you did. How can God forgive you? And uh, he's also uh, uh, called a destroyer, as I said. He is behind all disease and death. Disease and death does not come from God. Death didn't come into the world because God created it. It came into the world because of sin. It was introduced into the world because of Satan and it's still here because God has, is not yet ready to fix this whole world up. I've heard people say from time to time that certain diseases like cancer and AIDS are diabolical. I think that's an apt description of them. They seem to have that kind of demonic uh, quality about them. Uh, just about the time that scientists think they have isolated the AIDS virus, it mutates and it becomes something else, and they just can't seem to pin this thing down. Where does all this come from? It comes from the, the murderer, Apollyon, the destroyer, who wants to uh, take human life. Now, these are the, are the covert methods that he uses. He, uh, he introduces his demons into the world like moles in, in, uh, in Western uh, society, who are at work behind the scenes trying to trying to to, to bring us down and, and wreck and ruin the, the quality of our lives and turn our hearts away from God and seduce us into sin and and convince us that something we do that God says is not is not right for us is okay. It's gonna be alright. Uh, that's that's the lie that he first tried out on Eve. God's trying to deprive you of something. He's, he's, a, he's sort of a wet blanket. He just wants to snuff out fun in the world. Just try it. Just try it. It'll be all right. And she said, uh, God said, we'll die if we do it. And Satan said, you won't die. It's all right. God knows that you'll be like him if you eat of the fruit. And uh, Eve ate and she gave to Adam and he ate and they died. Sure enough, God was trying to, to keep them from harm. But Satan wants to cloud our minds and confuse us to the truth and make us believe that, that God wants to, wants to oppress and suppress our lives. Now, that's his covert activity. There's another side to his activity, which we could describe as, as overt activity. And uh, that's what I would call demonization or what the scriptures and sometimes commentators refer to as demon possession. 
Uh, it almost seems as though Satan goes too far. You know, he blows his cover. He comes out in the open in the form of demon possession. He gets so anxious to do his dirty work that uh, he goes too far. And he manifests himself in, in a way that everyone recognizes him for what he is. And uh, if you look at, a, at the demon-possessed people as they're described in the New Testament, or if you ever encounter one, uh, you, it, all of the malicious evil that characterizes Satan comes out. It just becomes abundantly clear what Satan is like. Now, because there's so much confusion about demon possession, I, I thought it would be worthwhile to share with you what I think are the marks of demon possession. There are a number of illnesses and afflictions and sins and troubles that people experience that are identified as demon possession, which may not be demon possession at all. And I think it's helpful to uh, to look at the scriptures and to and to take note of the descriptions of demon possessed uh, people in in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, and also to talk to missionaries and others that have encountered demon possession. I have been uh, in the ministry now for 27 years, and um, in those 27 years, I have encountered two people that I think were demon-possessed. One at the University of Americas down in Mexico, Pueblo, Mexico, and another in Palo Alto, California. And uh, my my experience is limited, but my experience tells me that on both of these cases, in both of these instances, the marks of possession correspond to those that you find in the New Testament. I've also talked to Dick Hillis and others who have encountered hundreds of demon-possessed people overseas. For some reason, there seems to be a great deal more overt demonic activity in other places, in places other than a Western civilization. I think it's because we are still living on the, with the heritage of the gospel. The gospel has been preached here for hundreds of years, and the works of darkness are being pushed back to the, uh, to the uh, outer uh, perimeters. And we're not seeing as much of it, but it's encroaching. We're seeing more and more of it, and I think uh, we will continue to see more, and we need to be able to recognize it when it, when it occurs. The, the marks of demon possession, I believe, are these. The first is the presence of multiple personalities. Whenever demon possession occurs in the New Testament, or when it occurs uh, in modern life, that always seems to be the case. You see it in this man. The pronouns that the demon uses are significant. He switches from the first person to the third person. He switches uh, from singular to plural. Uh, He refers to himself, and then he refers to the demons as uh, individuals. And you see that most clearly in the, uh, in the, the legion, that Jesus encountered in, in the man in the country of the Gerasenes. A Roman legion had from three to 6,000 soldiers in it, and this man, was, uh, he possessed a legion of demons. Now, that seems to be one characteristic uh, of demon possession, the presence of multiple personalities. They will sometimes speak with different voices. They may, in speak, they may even speak in different languages, the voices themselves are often quite different. They may use the vocal cords of the person who is possessed, but the voices are different and the personalities are different. 
The second mark of demon possession is what the scriptures call uncleanness. Here this man is described as having, literally having a spirit, i.e., an unclean demon. And the word that's used for unclean is the word for moral filth. They're, They're lewd. They're filthy. They're blasphemous. I uh, uh, was uh, not involved, but I was was working with students during the filthy speech movement of the 60s. Prior to the to that uh, particular movement, uh, it was rare to hear the F word, for example, in public. Now, uh, you you see uh, beautiful young women on television. Well, not so much on television, but in movies using that word unabashedly without uh, any embarrassment, without blushing. It's just accepted as the norm, and that's something that would be unheard of 10 years. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Well, my experience and the experience that I gained from reading the Scriptures is that that very often characterizes demon-possessed people. They Bathroom talk, if we can use that expression, sexual innuendo, Lewd, filthy speech, as well as blasphemy, seems to uh, characterize them. The third characteristic is antipathy toward Jesus and the gospel. Now, very often, unbelievers will uh, have a negative reaction to the gospel. But this is a a sort of, it's an inordinate reaction. It isn't a ration. It isn't rational. The particular woman I was referring to in Palo Alto would just become enraged if you read scripture to her. I tried to uh, share the gospel with her. Every time I mentioned the name of Jesus Christ, she flew into a rage. Every time I tried to read scripture to her, she blasphemed and cursed and swore. And uh, it's that sort of inordinate, uh, unusual reaction to, uh, to the name of Christ that's provoked. You can see it in the man here. When Jesus began to teach and announced himself as the conqueror of, of, uh, of, of the evil one, uh, this man apparently leaped to his feet and the demon screamed out at Jesus. The word that Luke uses uh, is more than just a, a retort or a response. It means to answer back. He, he interrupts angrily. And uh, there is this uh, strong reaction against the gospel. What have I to do with you? Literally. It's the same, actually, uh, the same phrase that Jesus used uh, with his mother at Cana when he said, what do we have in common? We're not tracking together. We're not not on the same wavelength. Well, this man jumped to his feet and screamed out at Jesus. Hi, he says. What do we have to do with you? There's this intense hatred and and antipathy uh, toward the... uh, uh, toward the gospel. The other characteristic, and uh, the one that uh, almost always occurs, is some sort of supernatural ability. The ability to read minds, uh, clairvoyance, uh, to speak languages that the person has never learned, sometimes uh, physical, extreme physical strength. Let me read a description of a number of demon-possessed people who reacted to John Wesley's preaching. It's not widely known that when, when Wesley came to the, to the United States and he began to preach on the frontier, uh, there were a number of demon-possessed people that came to his uh, meetings and tried to put a stop to them. And in his journal, he reports what happened uh, one night. I have seen people so foam and violently agitated that six men could not hold one. 
but he would spring out of their arms or off the ground and tear himself as in hellish agonies. Others I have seen sweat uncommonly, and their necks and tongues swell and twist out of all shape. Some prophesied, and some uttered the worst of blasphemies uh, against our, our Savior. Now, that's a description of demonic of a demonic reaction to Wesley's preaching. And it's precisely what happened when our Lord began to preach. He calmly read the scriptures, he seated himself, and he began to teach from those scriptures. He said, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your eyes. And apparently at that point, or at some point immediately after that, this demon-possessed man leaped to his feet and angrily challenged Jesus uh, in, in, right in the midst of his, uh, of his sermon. Now, you learn some significant facts from this, this challenge. Uh, this is what the man said. First, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The first thing that struck me as I read through this passage this last week is the fact that the demons know quite well who Jesus is. And they, perhaps more than anyone else in all of the universe, are in a position to know. Because they have been in that spiritual realm. That's where they live. And they apparently still have access to God's portion of the heavens. As we read the book of Job, that seems clear. They can observe what's going on. And they know who Jesus Christ is. In fact, James tells us that the demons are very orthodox. If you were to put uh, to any demon a theological examination, he would pass it with flying colors. They are more orthodox than we are, if we can put it that way. They just don't submit to any of it, that's all. They don't want to submit to our Lord's Lordship, but they know who he is. The, 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 the expression that the demon uses is significant. He refers to him, or they refer to him, as the Holy One of Israel. That's a quotation from the Old Testament, from one of the Psalms that refers to Messiah, to our Lord uh, himself as Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, so they know who he is. Uh, I heard this last week that uh, Gary Parsons and Jeannie Parsons were in Washington, D.C. for the presidential prayer breakfast, and uh, they were in the elevator waiting to go upstairs in their hotel, and the doors opened up, and who should walk in but Dr. Billy Graham. And you know Jeannie, those of you that know Jeannie, she said, Oh, Dr. Graham, I've, been, I've always wanted to meet you. And so they chattered all the way up uh, as the elevator went upstairs, and, and they, got, uh, they got to be acquainted. Now, it occurred to me, if Billy Graham came into this, this audience this morning, I probably would not be able to recognize him. I've seen him on television, but people look, uh, you know, they, they look a little different when you see him in person. And if he came in and he said, I'm Dr. Billy Graham, I would like to uh, address this crowd, I, you know, I might have a little bit of uneasiness because I've never met him personally. And maybe this is an imposter. This is maybe, maybe someone who made himself up to look like uh, the person that I've seen on television. But all I'd have to do is call Jeannie up and say, would you come over here and would you, t- 
would you talk to Dr. Graham and would you verify that this is the you know this is who he says he is? She would know. She would know. The demons know. They've seen him. They've confronted him in spiritual places in, in, in heaven. They they know what he's like. They know who he is. They're not fooled. And uh, therefore, this uh, this demon's witness is credible, if we can put it that way. The other thing that I uh, observed is that they know their doom is sure. That phrase just popped off the page at me this last week. Have you come to destroy us? They, they knew they were finished. You know, back in 1944, June the 6th, 1944, the Allies uh, uh, invaded Normandy. And the war was over, basically. The war was won. Hitler didn't have a chance after that. But he went on for 11 years fighting because he was crazy. And that's precisely what has happened. When our Lord died on the cross... He defeated principalities and powers. The war was over. But because Satan is mad, and by mad I mean crazy, he continues to fight on. But his doom is sure, as Luther puts it. He is finished. We're fighting a battle that's, uh, that's already won. Now, I want you to notice the calmness with which our Lord uh, confronted this man. I... I have not seen the exorcist, but I've talked to people that have, and they tell me that uh, the, the people who came in to try to exorcise the demon from this young woman uh, lost their lives. This was a mortal struggle that they were engaged in, and it goes on and on and on and on. It just strikes me the calmness with which our Lord handles the situation. Apparently, he didn't even get up from his chair because at the end of the story, we're told that he arose and went out of the synagogue. He continued to be seated. He said, basically, two things to the demon. He said, first of all, shut up. (laughs) Literally, that's what he said. Shut up. And he did. He never said another mumbling word. There's one inarticulate cry when he came out of the demon, but he didn't say anything. Just that one word, be quiet. Enough of this. And the demon didn't say another word. Now we ask why. You know, why did our Lord put an end to this uh, witness? It would seem to be a very powerful witness to to His person. Well, we don't know why. Uh, Luke doesn't explain for us, and commentators have made some good guesses. Some say it was not the time that He would have been killed before the time if the fact that He was the Messiah were widely known. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that. The endorsement of demons could confuse people and may have actually done so. Uh, A bit later on, the demon-possessed people were falling down and worshiping Jesus. And it may have been because of that that the Pharisees uh, could charge him, and the charge would be generally acceptable, uh, with doing his works uh, through Satan. They said, this is the prince of demons, this is Beelzebul, and he does his works, or he does his works by the prince of the of demons, and uh, this endorsement might be confusing, or it might simply be he doesn't want a spurious witness. He doesn't want phony witness. He didn't want people talking about him who aren't submitted to him. It would be better that they keep their mouth shut. We don't know. But what, what impresses me is this calm word of rebuke. Be quiet. And he was quiet. No hysterics, no shouting, 
No tearing of the hair. The second thing that impresses me is the ease with which he exercised this demon. He said, come out of me. And you can see something of the rage and uh, disappointment of this demon. It, it reminds me of the antics of a little little child when you say, all right, it's time to go to bed, go to bed. And they fall on the floor and they kick their heels and pound with their fists on the on the, uh, on the floor, but they know they have to go. And after they have their temper tantrum, then they go off to bed. And that's what this demon did. He threw the man on the floor, and, and there's this final paroxysm, this uh, convulsion that shook this man, and then he had to come out because he was scared to death of the Lord Jesus. He knew that he had to, uh, he had to obey. He was reluctant, but he had to go. That was the only name he'd ever feared. And the interesting thing to me is that is the response, or another interesting thing to me is the response of the audience. They said, my, with what authority this man teaches. He commands evil spirits. The, words they use, the word they use for commands is a military term. It was used of, of officers in the Roman army who would say to an underling, do this. And they were expected to do it. What authority. Jesus calmly, quietly speaks and the works of the devil are destroyed. May I read something to you? First John 3. Do you want to know why Jesus came? The one who practices sin, John says, is of the devil. Now, he doesn't mean that everybody who sins is demonic or diabolical. He's just saying that's the source of sin. If you practice sin, it's because the devil is behind it all. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. That's what this, that's what this miracle teaches in no uncertain terms. Not only did he come to destroy the works of the devil, he did it. He had the power to, to do so. So I, I conclude from this uh, from this text that Satan and his legions have no power to harm us. Not ultimately. Not ultimately. He can make life hell for us now. He can try to turn our habitat into his. He can lie to us. He can twist and distort the truth. He can accuse us. He can tempt us. He can even destroy us. He can make us sick and he can, he can kill our bodies, but he can't touch our soul. He can't. And he can't make us turn against God and he can't make us give way to disappointment and despair against God. Because what we see through all of this is that God does care about the works of the devil. He is concerned about what the evil one is doing in the world and he is powerful enough to do something about it. And one of these days, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And we have to be realistic about this world. You know, we stake everything on the birth of a child or recovering from cancer or stitching our marriage back together. And then the cancer kills and the baby is born brain damaged and we get the divorce papers in the mail and we think, what's going on here? Who's in control of the world? But we just have to be realistic This is not now our Father's world. This world is in the lap of the evil one. I think some, if I can put it this way, some of the truest words spoken in the New Testament 
are found in the book of Hebrews in that phrase, we do not now see everything subject to him. The, the author, the argument of the author is that this one has been given all authority and all power. And one of these days we're going to see that power manifest visibly. But we do not now see all things subject to him. We, we, we see the evil one at work, but it's only temporary. One of these days he's going to come back and he's going to do away with him forever. He's going to banish him from the universe into outer darkness. And as the Negro spiritual puts it, he ain't going to trouble us no more. Think back to Genesis 3 and the story of the fall. The promise was given to Eve that she would she'd bear a son. And, and then one of these days, someone that, that comes of that line would crush the head of the serpent. He would do so at terrible cost. He would bruise his heel. But the wound would not be mortal. The mortal wound would be inflicted on, on the evil one. That was a promise. We just waited and waited and waited and waited. And our Lord came and he died on the cross. And he defeated principalities and powers. And he dealt that death blow to the evil one. And he's still thrashing around and trying to make things as as hellish as, as he can make them. But his doom is sure. It's certain. It's as sure as the word of God. And one of these days, as Paul puts it, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. May I read another passage to you? It's found in the book of Revelation, right at the end, after describing all the the, the problems with this world and, and the way this world is bleeding from all of its wounds. He says in chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. One of these days he's going to be banished from the universe forever. He ain't going to trouble you no more. I, I would like to do this. Would you turn to number 333? And I would like to have you sing... Martin Luther's great old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and I hope that we'll all sing it with more meaning, with more understanding this morning as a result of going through this passage. This is one of those songs that we sing blithely. You know, we sing over the top of it, we sing superficially, we don't think about it. I do it too. But you can't look at a passage like this and, and think about the fact that our Lord came to destroy the works of the evil one and he has done it. And then read a hymn like uh, read a hymn or sing a hymn like this and be indifferent to the words, because the last line says on earth is not as equal, and that's a pretty terrifying thought. But there's more, as you'll see. Now, did you notice also that he is armed with cruel hate? Do you know the one who says to you, "Oh, what God is telling you is not good for you. I have a better plan." He doesn't love you. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. Do you understand that? Not because he cares about you. You're trash to him. It's because he hates God. And he wants to undo everything God is doing in your life. And that's why he makes those, those subtle suggestions. 
I've got the best plan. But it's a lie. He hates you. Now, uh, let's look at the second verse. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? That's the response to the lion on earth is not as equal. None of us are equal to the evil one. We're not up to the task of, of, of conquering sin and habits that, uh, that beset us. We can't do that. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right men on our side, the men of God's own choosing. Who is that? Let's ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name. Sabbath is the, the Hebrew word for host. It's, that's the name of God in the Old Testament, who is the Lord of heavenly hosts, all the angels who come to your defense when you're assaulted. Lord Sabbath, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled, and it is, it is. They're all over. They're all around us. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Lord, we're reminded that they overcame him by the blood of the cross, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives unto death. Thank you for this this word that puts starch into our spine, that delivers us from obsession with demons, that sets us free to serve. Thank you that you came to undo the works of the evil one. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.